Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, half our staff is out sick. I too have a bug. And thus the hot tea. I'm not going to have my usual social energy after the sermon. The reality is I get in the most trouble with things I say to people going out the door after preaching. So that's probably good. I'm going to just disappear. Um, Pastor Tyler's feeling okay. He is in Dallas, Texas. Do we have anyone from Dallas or from Texas here? Do we have people that love, love, love Texas that would be offended if I spoke out against Texas? Raise your hand. You love Texas, so I can't tell you. You love Texas. I can't say it then. Because Tyler just told me he's, he's feeling well, but he's in Texas. But... He's in Dallas, but it's kind of like having a sickness. Okay, so I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say it. And I actually softened it, so you don't have to be mad at Tyler. Hey, this morning we're back in our, in our teaching. 34 weeks, just allowing the teachings of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount be our teaching schedule for these weeks. A slow-roasted, crock-potted version, because the reality is that we could never never explore the depth and nuance of what the teachings of Jesus, the red-letter teachings of Jesus are here in his most famous sermon, the most famous sermon of all times, the Sermon on the Mount. And and fascinating, we come to a, a portion of the scriptures that three of the most famous teachings of Jesus fall in rapid succession, um, often tortured and torn from context and manipulated to mean what we would like them to mean. So last week, uh, Pastor Tyler, so, so uh, with great excellence, uh, talked about do not judge. You know, don't judge me. And, and what Jesus really meant, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. And then this morning, we're going to hit two more. Actually, I'm not going to teach the third one, but it's in there for context. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the golden rule. Very famous, and we love, and it shows up in all kinds of places uh, in our culture and our world, even places that are very far from Christ. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But there's another one in here today that you might be familiar with, and the ways that it gets ripped out of context um, ask and you shall receive, right? So so here's the text. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 7, 7 through 12. So if you have your Bibles open or you see it on the screen, this is what Jesus says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. Now, before we go on to the next verse, I want to just point out two things. The first is the verb tenses that show up again in the next portion. That they are present, active, indicative. Meaning, the better interpretation, and I like this in in the NLT, not as much the ESV, But the NLT renders this correctly, in my opinion. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The second thing that I want you to notice is the ever-increasing intensity of the pursuer. That it begins with a conversation, but then it moves to action and movement, and then ends with aggression. To actually be banging on something. So we're going to come back to that, but it's important as we read through this. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek or keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and it will be open to you. For everyone 
who keeps asking receives, and the one who keeps seeking finds, and the one who keeps knocking, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if he has a son, asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And then for context, so, or uh, same word in the Greek that's rendered therefore, tying it back to what Jesus just said, therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, ripped from its theological and literary context, these words of Jesus are often mistreated and misrepresented by both the world and the church alike. As if it is a blank check for the earnest soul that, that a person that wants something or even anything badly enough and is persistent enough can actually either get God in an arm bar, quote this back to God, say, you said, or just wear him down in persistence. I will say this, that's actually taught in another place, but not here. Uh, but the idea is that the person can have their wants and their desires, and if they do it long enough, they can get God to give them what they want. This is where I would throw in the term, name it and claim it. This idea has been aided over the centuries by sincere Bible uh, students that see Matthew chapter 7, the final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, as a mishmash of Jesus' sayings. As if perhaps Matthew uh, succumbs to editorial fatigue. And, and in this idea, the, the Sermon on the Mount is really Matthew's brilliance of thinking through all the teachings of Jesus and building a sermon of Jesus' sayings. But by the time he gets to chapter 7, He's just got a bunch of important things he needs to jam in there. Rather than a first century sermon that Jesus actually taught with brilliance of thought and purpose and flow of logic. And I would argue that the Holy Spirit is, is bringing to memory in Matthew what Jesus actually taught so this name it and claim it interpretation simply does not fit the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of Jesus, the brilliance of the Holy Spirit's bringing to memory in Matthew of what Jesus actually said. And that this text is not just another thought, quick, get it in there, that it absolutely fits the immediate literary context as well as the broader context of the sermon itself. All of the law and the prophets, because we just read that at the end of verse 12, and that's where Jesus began in, in chapter 5. Don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. That this actually belongs right where it is and matches the context, telling us what Jesus is actually teaching. So, Go with me back into the immediate context. Last week, Pastor Tyler, uh, with excellence, taught on um, 
do not judge in what it does and does not mean. And the idea of being critical, self-righteous, judgy, pejorative, superior, more holy than thou, condemning Christians. And it has no place in the church. And yet, what do we struggle with? Judgy, condemning, more holy than thou, I'm better than you. You're really stupid. You're a sinner. You're an idiot. What about all those idiots? And that judgy attitude on one end, verse 1 through 6, and then what did we just end with? Therefore, ask, seek, knock. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Therefore, tying it back to that, what you wish others to do for you, do that to them. In the first bookend, verse 1 through 6, we are taught how not to relate to others on one side. And on the other side, we are taught how to relate to others. You follow? Okay, so here's the question. With that clue, what might keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking actually mean? Want something bad enough and ask long enough to get whatever you want because you believe it enough? That you asked for it long enough? Or something else? All right, now blow it out to the broader context of what we're supposed to pray for and how we're supposed to pray, what we're supposed to actually want throughout the entire sermon. The heart of Jesus flowing through the entire sermon. So we go back into what we should be asking and, and seeking and how we're supposed to do it. We're told in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, he actually knows what we need already. So just mention it. Don't be like the Gentiles who think that you're going to wear God down with all kinds of flowery prayers over time. We are taught in the Lord's Prayer, verse, chapter 6, verse 11, to ask for daily bread and to do it daily. True. We're told later on in chapter 6, not to seek earthly treasures. And in the context, we see the to be seen and praised by others on one side of that command, and on the other side, earthly treasures, wealth, in lining our pockets and making sure that we have a real secure retirement, that that should not be our ambition. So in place of that, we are told that we are to be passionate for and desire treasures in heaven that are secure and that will go on for all eternity. And then finally, about all of our earthly needs, we're told not to be anxious. In so many ways, Jesus in chapter 6, verse 25 through 31, explains we don't have to worry about that stuff like the flowers or the birds of the air. Do not be anxious. So we're actually already taught that we're to desire the right things in certain lower things, we're supposed to just leave on the doorstep and walk away and say, you decide. Um, and we're supposed to ask for some things, even the transformation of our desires, that they would be for, for important and eternal and meaningful things. So, given the local and broader context of the sermon, what could these verses mean to keep asking, keep seeking keep knocking. Here's the riddle. 
I'm going to ask you a series of questions, hopefully leading us into the interpretation. Eventually, I'll tell you what it is, what I think it is. So what is the thing that Jesus would have us continually and persistently pray for? With ever-increasing intensity. What is it that our Heavenly Father will always say yes to? We will always get it. What is it that even when received from the Father will not completely be the fulfillment in this lifetime and be fully experienced such that we will need to keep on asking, keep seeking, keep knocking? What is it that when God grants it to me, I might be tempted to question his motives and see it as a stone or a serpent? That's in there. What has already been eliminated as to what we should so persistently pursue in our prayer life and in our, our spiritual uh, walk with God? What's already been eliminated and taken out of the ta- off the table what, what we just looked at? What's the broader teaching of Jesus in the ser- sermon? What is it supposed to produce in the earnest follower of Jesus? Pride, arrogance, self-satisfied, Wow, I've really nailed it. I really do have a righteousness better than the scribes and Pharisees. I really have become perfect like my heavenly father. Is that what the sermon is intended to produce in us? What is the immediate context of the inclusio that I described from judgy, preachy, condemny people or people with genuine goodness that love others just as much or even better than they love themselves. Let me tell you a quick story. Two Thursdays ago, I was up here at, uh, what's this country club called up on the mountain? Yeah, Skyline Country Club, where my daughter and son-in-law were married. Um, We were at a, a citywide pastor's prayer summit on a Thursday. And a young lady, actually she's my age, came walking up to me and said, Jim, it's Cindy. And I went, oh my goodness, it's Cindy. I have not seen you in 35 years. How did you get here? I moved here nine, nine months ago. I've not seen Cindy since high school. And wow, she's been through a crazy journey of life. And nine months ago, she ended up coming down here. She's going to uh, uh, New Hope Community Church down on 22nd um, with my friend, Pastor Jeff. And is involved in ministry there. And uh, I remember Cindy really well. I want to tell you something about who I was in high school. I actually had an authentic hunger and thirst for Jesus. My uh, buddy, and actually you just saw one of them, Kenyon Kale, who's the head elder. We were high school kids together in the same youth group with Cindy. And we would uh, ride bikes. And our goal every summer was to ride from Phoenix to Prescott to summer camp. And we did that three summers in a row. Our parents were awesome. They let us ride at night on the I-17, 120 miles in the dark. Dead serious. Hey, I'm just going to say, let your sons have have crazy adventures or they will get themselves into other kinds of trouble. So so yay mom, yay dad, they let us have these crazy adventures. And uh, we would ride up there, but we would do training rides that included slumber parties. And there were many times that from like 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., 
without any adult leaders there, we would have like hour or two hour long prayer meetings just because we loved Jesus and we believed God was good. And we would pray for our youth leaders. We would pray for people that we knew in the youth ministry. And I'm, I'm telling you this story because there was a real love for Christ in me and in us. But here's what was lacking. We totally and completely missed the Cindy's of the youth ministry. They were more likely to be um, objects to mock or, or to tease or ignore. And so there I was 35 years later in line for lunch with Cindy. And I said, Cindy, I never got your story. I was in youth ministry for four years. Where did you come from? How did you get to Scottsdale Baptist? And Cindy started to tell me her story of coming from a deeply dysfunctional, abusive household in South Scottsdale. Verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. And the lead pastor, the senior pastor's wife, was, did, did uh, duty on the playground. And in fourth grade, she started to reach out to Cindy and brought her to church. And she brought her to Sunday school, and she brought her to VBS and Awana. And she began to train and teach with all the other children. Cindy was a missionary outreach kid in the community that was ripe and open to the gospel. And there was a church and a, and a pastor's wife that was willing to go after this kid and teach her the gospel and teach her doctrine. By the time I got to Scottsdale Baptist, she was just a kid in the youth ministry that I ignored. And I said this to Cindy. I said, Cindy, I want you to know something. I really loved Jesus. I had an authentic walk with Christ. But I want to tell you, I know we can't do do-overs, but if I could do it over, Cindy, I would be kind to you. And I'm so sorry that I was not kind. I totally missed her. Now, she gave me a pass, told me I was kind, and I go, no. Here's the deal. If I could love Jesus that much and be so completely blind and have such character defects that I could look at a lost girl, a broken girl from a broken home and ignore or make fun of, what am I missing now at age 53? And at what point does that make me furious and upset and angry and angsty and hungry and thirsty after righteousness, a righteousness I cannot produce in myself? At what point am I broken over my lack of Christ-likeness, even at age 53? I want to be better than I am. I'm hungering after this thing, and I don't got what I want. There's some things I want. Yeah, I want a book deal too, Joel. I want, I want to, to have, you know, fundraising, those things, but nothing compared to Christ in me. And to be conformed to the image of my Savior at 53, I go, dear God, I'm, life is flying by and I'm still a jerk. And I'm tired of it. I judge and abuse and mistreat people still to this day. And I do not treat them the way that I want to be treated. And Jesus comes to me and says, hey, good news. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. 
For everyone to whom keeps on asking, receives. And the one who keeps on seeking, finds. And the one who keeps on knocking, it will be open to them. Your father's a good father. You ask for this good thing, he's not going to give you a stone. You ask for this good thing, he's not going to give you a serpent. You had pretty decent earthly fathers, but they're evil. You ask for good things, and sometimes they, they came through, sometimes they didn't. Your heavenly father is perfect. You ask for this good and right thing, you become desperate, you are hungering and thirsting after the right things, and you are pleading with God. And by the way, you're never going to get it in full in this lifetime, so you're going to have to keep pressing into that thing. Here's our bottom line for this morning. He, the Father, (coughs) will always say yes to our highest request. There's so many things that we want in this life, and they're not bad things. Hey, I want a great marriage. I want my kids to be healthy and happy. I want their marriages to be amazing. Those are good things. We should ask for those things. I do want a book deal. I do want success in my career. And those are good things, and it's okay to ask for those things, but those are not the most important things. Simply not. The most important thing is, Father, could I share in your holiness? Jesus, could I share in your likeness? Jesus, could you conform me to your image by your your Holy Spirit, your work in me? Could you make me more like Jesus today than I was yesterday? This is our highest request. Sandwiched right there between these two bookends of becoming the kind of people we know that God wants us to become. And guess what the good news is? He will always say yes to our highest request. He loves to do that in us. Two things that I think are extremely important to understand as we pray in this direction. I mean, that's just got to be good news. It was actually last week that I was studying this, maybe on a Wednesday. And I was standing out here. Everyone was gone. The sun was coming in through the double doors. I was making sure they were locked. And I was just standing there, <coughs> excuse me, and just looking out, out the door and going, God, you want to give this to me. I am so frustrated about who I have not yet become. I am hungering and thirsting after good and right things, and you want to say yes. So make me like Jesus. Make me more like your son. Isn't that good news? The one prayer request he will always say yes to. So ask, seek, and knock, pressing in. But here's the deal. Fill in the blank. It will be a lifetime pursuit with ever-increasing intensity. I've already pointed that out. The Greek verb tenses, this never stops. You don't get to say in this lifetime, yep, I'm sinless. First John would say, you're a liar if you say you're sinless. So the holiness movement stuff that says, oh, no, I stopped sinning. Wrong. First John, you just violated scripture. Foul on the field. And if you keep saying it, you're a cult. Go away. We don't arrive in this lifetime. So we press in, but also with ever-increasing intensity of moving from a conversation to an to a actual motion and in, in getting up and in doing something, seeking it out to the point of, of aggression and banging on a door. God, this is something that I want, something I'm hungering for. 
please, Father, make your life real in me. <coughs> the Apostle Paul, because you might go, oh, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. What's the rest of the scripture say? I love the Apostle Paul's attitude that we read about in Philippians chapter 3. Um, I'll just read it, but Philippians 3, as, as we roll into what I want to read to you, Paul is talking about false teachers, mutilators of the flesh, Judaizers. They're coming into the church, and they're teaching Gentiles that they got to get circumcised, and they got to keep kosher, and do all these things to become real Christians. And Paul actually just throws them under the bus, says, I wish they would mutilate themselves, mutilators of the flesh. And he goes, they think they have reason to boast, I all the more. Paul talks about his, his genetic and religious pedigree. He talks about his commitment to godliness from his past. He talks about fame. And man, if anyone was an awesome religious person, which by the way, in the first century Judaism, that was actually considered a cool thing. Paul says, I had that all. All of that I had. And then he calls it in the Greek, skubala. And the best thing that I can say in church to, to roughly approximate that is poo-poo. It might be actually much stronger in the Greek. So you say, just say it then. No, I'm not going to do it. Um, skubala, poo-poo. All that stuff, all that praise and applause of man and that notoriety and I'm awesome. It's terrible in comparison to knowing Christ. Being found in Christ. Having an intimacy with Christ. And he says these words, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I'm not there yet, he says. But what do I do? I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he's not doubting his justification and whether or not he's a Christian or not. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But the one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. What lies behind? Religious arrogance. But he told his story, so he's not forgetting his story. He's just saying... That used to be me, and it doesn't mean anything compared to what's in front of me actually being like Christ. That's what he says. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is intense. He's been walking with Jesus. He's been leading people to Christ. He's been planting churches. He's been being used of the Holy Spirit to write books of the Bible that we still have today. And he says, yeah, and that's not it yet. Why? Because there's more that needs to happen in me. I'm still a jerk at times. I mistreat people around me. Yes, Paul mistreated people. He wasn't Jesus round two. He wasn't perfect. And he sees it himself. Read Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is, he's groaning over what is still lacking in his transformation. And here he's saying, and I'm pressing on and into it. He's asking and seeking and knocking. And you go, that's kind of intense. You know, he's an apostle and kind of a super Christian. Really? The next verse, after him saying, here's what I do, he says this. 
Let those of us who are mature think like this or think this way. If anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Like, think like me. We need to be passionate for the right things. Our highest request is to be like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be good from the heart, that when we're bumped, we don't have to say, oh, I'm tempted to be bad. We don't even think of it anymore. Things that used to tempt us no longer tempt us because we've been so radically changed. Aren't you hungering and thirsting after that kind of righteousness? Why does everything have to be just a white knuckle, don't do the temptation? What if there was a, a, a time and a season we go, eh, no, not interested. Because we're transformed, not perfect, but transformed. That's what he is pressing on and into. There's an intensity. And God always wants to say yes to that kind of intensity that wants to be more like him. Here's the second thing. This is interesting, but your next fill in the blank, it will always include therapeutic hardship from the hand of a perfect God. Now, I might have set like 5% of you off, therapy, therapy, yeah, you know what it means? Healing, healing, transformational in a good direction. And that hardship from the hand of God can be therapeutic in making us more like Christ. Okay? This is why we look at this and we could look and see like, wow, we can misinterpret things in our lives. We're asking for the likeness of Christ in our life and we feel like God is giving us stone for bread Serpent for fish, or in Luke's gospel, a scorpion instead of an egg. Why does Jesus outline this? Because sometimes the way life unfolds for us, even as we pray like crazy and we plan like crazy, sometimes it feels like our Heavenly Father is harsh, mean, cruel, unforgiving, or punishing us for sins of our youth. Something from our past, he's getting even. Have you ever had that feeling? Like, what if I did something to disqualify myself and and Jesus is mad at me? And I've been put in the penalty box. Have you ever felt like that? You know, you would never say that to anyone else, but you think it might be true for you. Because you keep getting stones and serpents and scorpions, so it feels. Rather than seeing... God is giving you the very thing that is going to help you become more like Jesus. Okay? Why does God allow such horrific hardship in our life? Is it, is it random? Is it an accident? Is it punitive? Is it Satan? <clears throat> Did I not pray enough? Did I not ask, seek, knock enough? Did I not believe enough? And the answer is may it never be. May it never be. Don't think that way. That bad things happen to godly people. And God might not be the direct cause of it, but all things work together for good 
And what is the good? That we might become more like his son, Jesus. That we might know Christ. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but that which comes through faith. So these hardships are transformational. Here's the deal. The reality is, and this is throughout the pages of scripture, that too much good in our lives does not yield good in our lives. No one has ever been able to game the system. God, you bless me and bless me and bless me. I'm going to be better and better and better. And for whatever reason, it just doesn't work. From Genesis to Revelation, we need hardship in our lives to help us to become more like Jesus. In fact, Jesus didn't get a pass. Nobody gets a pass. God the Father is doing things to help us be transformed. Therapeutic hardship. Here's something from my, uh, <coughs> my uh, devotions this year that I came across when I was in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 3215 is the song of Moses. Uh, at the end of Moses' ministry, and he's, he writes this song, and he's singing it back to the people of Israel. And in Deuteronomy 32.15, very enigmatic. I mean, it's an enigma. Like, what does that mean? Where Moses writes, but Jerushan, and you go, who's Jerushan? What's that mean? Uh, it's translated, the beloved upright people, or the dear upright people, the dear upright people of God. And Moses says, but Jerushan grew fat, he got too much food, and he kicked. Huh? This is the little kid that gets too big and becomes the bully. God blessed his children, Jerushan, and he blessed them and blessed them and blessed them. Instead of turning back to him and th saying thank you, just so apropos here on Thanksgiving weekend, instead, he kicked and became a bully. And then he goes on to say, then, oh, grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. God blesses people, and they get arrogant. Isn't that kind of the story? Like, too much good for too long, and we end up, at the very least, becoming entitled having an entitled spirit about us or arrogance that feels like we somehow earned it. And at the very worst, we come flat out idolaters and we love the things that he gave us. And that's what happened here. And it's all throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, that too much good in our lives almost always works against becoming good in our hearts. Epilepsy having a child with, that's medically fragile, special needs and disability can seem absolutely cruel. Like, thanks, God. Feels like a stone or a serpent. The very thing I hate is the very thing that is making me more like Jesus. In fact, if I could tie the two stories together of what God's done in my life through disability and special needs in a broken child, and then meeting an old friend, Cindy, I've been changed and been given a compassionate heart 
because of the brokenness of what God's done in my story. That if it was all up and up and I just got everything I ever think I thought I wanted, I'd be arrogant and I would still be condescending and going, I don't know you, even as a Christian. God gives us these hard things, not because he's angry at us, but because he is answering our prayers to make us more like himself. He is taking evil and he's turning it in and working evil out from us by difficulty to us. And I want you to understand that in the end, even the hard things are good things when they come from a good and perfect Father's heart. So you can trust him, whatever it is you're going through, that you go, this is just lousy, this just stinks, I feel so icky, I feel like I'm lost, I've been missed, I've been marginalized, I've been forgotten, I feel like a failure, my kids are off the rails, any number of things, my marriage stinks. And it could be the very thing that God is doing to draw you into intimacy with him and form his character in you, that even bad things are good things when they come from a father's good heart. So you can trust him in that. This is what Paul would say when he had a thorn in the flesh, and scholars don't know exactly what that was. Was it, a, was it an eye disease? Was it um, something about his personality that he didn't, didn't like? Some uh, scholars think that there were women in his life that were, that were critical of him and henpecked him. Not a, he wasn't married, so, but seriously, that's a real interpretation. A thorn in the flesh in God. He says, I prayed three times, three times, God, take this thing away. But then this is the conclusion. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-11, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weaknesses or weakness. He goes on to say, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Bad things are happening to him. He's leaning more heavily on Christ. And Christ is moving and working in and through him making him more like Jesus. The writer of Hebrews would say this, Hebrews 12, My son and daughters, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. He really does treat us with discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is that a, that a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Nobody gets a free ride and gets everything they think they wanted. God actually allows difficulties in our lives to work foolishness out of us. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we much, not much more subject be subject to the Father of spirits and live. They disciplined us for a short time, it seems best to them. But watch this. But he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. Got it? He will always say yes to our highest request. Don't be surprised when sometimes adversity comes. Will you trust his good heart? 
Well, there's no, what else are you going to do? Dear God, don't make me like Jesus. Dear God, make me shallow. Hey, dear God, leave me mean. Hey, dear God, let me become an old, grumpy person. Is that okay? Well, the only choice forward is, dear God, whatever it takes, make me more like your son, Jesus. And I'm going to be back here tomorrow, and I'm going to ask some more. And I'm going to seek some more, and I'm going to knock some more. Because I got no choice. This is all that's in front of me. This morning, can I give you some takeaways? Keep asking. Pray. Pray. Say, hey, God, make me more like your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, point out when I'm not so I can identify that and bring it back to you. Say, can we work on this, Lord? Ask. Have a conversation. Seek. What would that mean? Take responsibility for your own spiritual formation. Don't blame your campus ministry that they let you down. Don't blame your church. Don't blame your small group leader. Take responsibility and learn to do what is called self-feeding. You seek this thing for yourself. Knocking. What would that mean? Where you actually get to the point of aggressive intensity. I would tie this to a willingness to forego. Cut out of your life anything that you know is damaging God's work in you. The Puritans called it mortification of the flesh. Where you say, I'm going to put to death that thing. For me, a couple weeks back, Instagram was just not a good thing. It was on my cell phone. I'd open it up, punch on it. You know, it gives you like, there's three notes, messages for you. Oh, I got to look at Instagram. And it was taking my time. It was leading to things that were not good. So first off, I moved it off my home screen. But I was still going to it. So I deleted the app. Haven't touched it for maybe a month now. Maybe longer. I'm not telling you to get off Instagram. For me, that's what knocking looked like. To put it to death, say, I don't need that. It's not helping me grow. It's actually working in the other direction. So what is that for you to be aggressive and intense, to strain toward the goal of the upward call of being more like Jesus? Join God in what he is already doing in you. Words of encouragement, he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. But a chapter later, the Apostle Paul would say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Join him in it. Ask him, because he will always say yes to your highest request. And there's no plan B. So let's press into him. Can I pray? Lord God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for saving us for a life of futility, inherited from our parents and grandparents, uh, physical, physically. Thank you for your spirit in us, the spirit of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for taking residence in our life. Thank you for, in the meantime, you cover us, but Lord God, what is the hope? The hope is that we could actually be like Jesus. In this life, conform to the image of Christ. It's the greatest gift that we could give to one another, greatest gift that we could give to our spouse, greatest gift we could give to our children or grandchildren, greatest gift that we could give to our neighbors, and greatest gift that we could give to this community is that we would be like little Jesuses walking around, treating others the way we ourselves would want to be treated. 
This is our, our hope that we ask, seek, and knock. Thank you for wanting to do this in us. We love you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.